This morning we're continuing our study of covenant theology. And just to kind of recap where we have come from and where we are going in this series, I think we're in um, uh, week six of our series. Excuse me, there we go, that's better. And our goal here simply is we've kind of identified, have made the argument that covenant theology seeks to understand the big picture, the theme, the motif of Scripture. Covenant is the way that God reveals Himself to us. Covenant is the way that God relates to us and defines our relationship with Him. We see this in Scripture. He comes and He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. Jesus Christ comes and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. These things reveal God to us and His plan of redemption. Specific application, why it matters, why we're studying it, is because relating the Old Testament to the New Testament and seeing the overall theme and purpose of God's redemptive plan in history um, is important for understanding the relation between Old Testament and New Testament. Understanding what God requires of us in covenant with Him. Understanding His plan of redemption for us and how He has worked these things. So last week, we considered various other views on redemptive history. Wait a second. This is not good. (laughs) That's not what we considered last week. Hold on. Yep, this is not what we considered last week. Can I blame somebody for this, Nathan? We're going to have to hit pause here for a second. I got the wrong PowerPoint up. Try this one more time. So while I'm opening this up, who can remind me, remind us what we studied last week? What, what did we consider last week? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Very, very good, Ethan. I'm proud of you. We talked about the different covenants that God has made in history. Four, five, four, five. There we go. All right. Just covered that, okay. Last week we considered the elements that make a biblical covenant. How do we identify a covenant in Scripture? And we talked about how it's, some of the covenants in Scripture aren't always called explicitly a covenant. We looked at how God came and made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and yet it's not called a covenant in that narrative But later, the psalmist looks back on it and identifies it as a covenant. So we looked at the elements that make up a biblical covenant. 
And from this, we looked at the major covenants in Scripture. Covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, covenant of works, uh, covenant of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant. We kind of just did a brief survey of how these things, um, how these relationships, how these covenants um, appear in Scripture. And we kind of settled on, began to look at, as we go through these in the next few weeks, we began with the covenant of redemption. And that's our focus, not only the end of last week, but our focus today as well. The covenant of redemption. Let's define the covenant of redemption, if you guys remember from last week. We identified it as an eternal covenant agreement within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the purpose of redeeming the elect. The Father gives the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect and requires of Him the conditions for their obedience, for their, excuse me, for their redemption. The Son voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions, and that's what He does in His life and death. And the Spirit voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. This is what we define as the covenant of redemption. Why did we begin with the covenant of redemption? Who remembers that? It's first in time and space, right? In that sense. Lack of time and space, exactly. But also because from this covenant flow all other biblical covenants. This is God's blueprint for our salvation. Before the creation of the world, a plan was already in place to send the Son as a second Adam to redeem the disastrous results of the first Adam's sin. To use more academic theological language, it is the archetype covenant. The earthly covenants are the ectype. They are the pattern after the ultimate epitome, the ultimate standard. So Adam's sin is decreed before it occurs. Before the sin occurs. That's... Uh, Cody was here a second ago. He stepped out. That's what Cody asked last week. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm getting into. But yes, I mean, our, our, our confession of faith in this church um, declares, yeah, absolutely, we believe the Scriptures teach that because Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, because He was uh, foreknown before the foundation of the world, um, that it was part of God's plan to, um, in some sense, decree the fall. Yes. All right, so today, I want to look and defend what I just defined for you from Scripture. All right, I gave you the definition. Where is this found in Scripture? Prove it, right? And I also want to talk about why it matters. Why do we care? What, 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 the covenant, is it just academic? Is it just... Theoretical? Is it abstract? Why does it actually matter in our Christian walk, in our understanding of our faith and practice? And from that, that's not number one, sorry, more PowerPoint problems. From that, next week we will begin talking about the covenant of grace, which flows out of the covenant of redemption.
the accomplishment of the covenant redemption in history. And that's where things will get good in regards to Presbyterian versus Baptist and all that stuff. So, yes, yes, I know you're excited. All right, the covenant redemption in Scripture. I'm going to ask for some volunteers here so that we can, uh, we can have some uh, people read, read in a, in a clear, loud voice. Um, but I want to answer the question, where is this idea found in the Bible? And as we ask this question, I want to remind you that um, to keep in mind, remember, this is a theological concept, kind of like the Trinity. There are no verses that explicitly say, now, the God is three in one, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But from the relationship that we see in Scripture, the relationship in the Godhead, we can form an understanding of the Trinity, but also we can form an understanding of this covenant of redemption. It flows out of examining the language and relationship among the Godhead, specifically in relation to the redemptive work of Christ. So, I keep bringing this up. I've mentioned it several times. I'll just remind it of you real quick. Paul opens his epistle to Titus by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. God made a promise He promised this promise before the ages began, before anything was created. Thus, who did He make this promise to if nobody was around? He made it to Himself. That's what we're breaking down here. And at the proper time, manifested in His Word. That's the covenant of grace, the Gospel. We'll get to that next week. But another passage here is John 17, 1-7. And if I could have somebody turn there real quick and uh, read that loud and clear. It's up on the screen here in case you want to follow along there. But John 17, 1-7. Someone will please read that. Go ahead, John. Thank you. When Jesus is Thank you, John. Of course, this is the high priestly prayer of John 17 before Jesus heads to the cross. It gives us a glorious window into the relationship between the Father and the Son. It gives us a glorious window 
into Christ's intercession for us, His understanding of His work, His relationship to the Father, and His relationship to us. But notice a few things that we can deduce from this. The Father gives the Son work to do. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When did the Father give the Son work to do? Clearly, before He came to earth. Something that we will defend um, from the book of Hebrews here in a few moments. But He talks about the glory that He had with the Father before the world began. And He talks about the work accomplished that You gave Me to do. Next thing we see is that the Son completed this work and it's on this basis that He makes a request in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify Me. You see the relationship here? There's a contrast. I've accomplished it. Now, glorify Me. Because I accomplished it, now glorify Me. The basis of His request to glorify Him is because He has obeyed. He's fulfilled His part of the bargain, if you want to think of it that way. So He's given a work to do, and He's done that, and on that basis, He asked the Father, what else do we see? We also see here that those who have been given eternal life, in verse 2, who know God in Jesus Christ, verse 3, are those whom, described in verse 6, you gave me out of the world. Um, remember, we talked about we talked about the fact that uh, how should I phrase this? One of the gifts, or one of the rewards of the covenant of redemption, is a people that the Father gives to the Son. The elect, the chosen, the, the people of God, the church, essentially is a love gift from the Father to the Son for the fulfilling in, of, of the work that uh, the Father gave the Son to do. This is what comes out here. You gave me these people out of the world. Of course, we compare this to Scripture. When did the Father give the people a son. We get a window into that. Ephesians 1.4 We were predestined, we were chosen in Christ. In Christ before the foundation of the world. This comes out in many other places in Scripture. This is when the Father gave a people to the Son. John 6.37-40 uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it really quickly. But it follows up, gives us some insight into this as well. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up, on the last day. Again, the Father gave the Son a people. 
The Father gave the Son a will to obey, to lose none of them. This is the will of Him who sent me. I should lose none of them, but accomplish their redemption. Any questions here before we look at the next passage? Any comments? Any thoughts? Yes, or maybe more specifically, um, when God tells Israel, you are a chosen nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for God's own possession. So yes, in that sense, I will be your God and you will be my people. Absolutely. There's a special relationship there. Israel is reminded over and over again that they were not, uh, that God um, did not choose them, did not enter into a covenant and relationship with them because they were better than anyone else, but simply out of His love. And that is the pattern, obviously, that we see that um, reveals His relationship to the church as well. Now we'll get into next week how, that, um, how the Old Testament is it, but an incomplete picture of that relationship. And that's where the issues come with whether to baptize infants or not, the understanding of the covenant and things of that nature. We'll get into that, but without a doubt, the Old Testament sets that precedence for sure. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Someone please read verses 5 through 10 loud and clear. I read it. Thank you, Luke. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take me no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings or in burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Excellent. Thank you. You picked up on some of the language here. Covenantal language. First, notice that the incarnation is in view here. When Christ came into the world, a body was prepared. What does that reveal? Prepared. This is forethought. This is preparation. Beforehand, a body was prepared for Christ. Christ, um, uh, living in the presence of God, in perfect harmony, in the glory of God, as a second member of the Trinity, came down from heaven and took on a body that had been prepared for Him. Right? This is a plan. 
Also, just a side note on that, the passage that is cited right here in Hebrews 10, it's quoted in the Old Testament, it comes from Psalm 40. This predates the Incarnation. So, you can't say that this is being spoken after Christ took, took a body. It's a prophecy in Psalm, Psalm 40 that looked forward to the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. Josh, would you mind closing that door? Oh wait, the wind is doing it. That was prophetic. (laughs) Note as well here, the will of the Father and the Son. I have come to do your will, O God. This is the psalmist, this is Jesus speaking to His God, to His Father. And the result of that, doing your will, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will that He came to do was to offer His body to redeem the people. And because He fulfilled that, we have been sanctified once for all. Conclusion then, briefly, to sum up, Hebrews 10, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, essentially, is essentially Christ's loyal words to the Father as he submitted himself to the conditions of the covenant of redemption. I've come to do your will. But let's push back a little bit. Maybe you're thinking this already. We sure that this is a covenant? I mean, is it just speaking of, okay, well, yeah, they, they kind of understood within the Godhead what they were going to do, but how can we be sure that this is a covenant? That seems to be stretching things a little bit. Is it just a conversation that they had? Obviously, speaking in human terms. And on what basis can we say that there were promises, oaths, obedience, obligations? Turn to Psalm 110. Now actually I'm not going to read the entire psalm. You can have it there because I'm going to jump between verse 1 and verse 4. In fact, let's just read verse 1 and verse 4. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then down in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we approach this psalm, we'll first note that Matthew twenty-two forty-four 44 is one place where Jesus Himself confirms that the Lord says to my Lord is not David talking to the Lord. but is 
the greater David. Ultimately. Himself. But in this we see a relationship. A relationship between the Father and the Son. And speaking to one another, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies your footstool. God is presently putting all things under the feet of Christ. But focus, I want to focus in on this verse 4 here. Notice the covenant of language again. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This relationship, the things that are spoken of in Psalm 10, are sealed with an oath, swearing. And this refers to Christ's priesthood. You are a priest forever. As well as what we read in verse 1, His kingship. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Swearing an oath is covenantal language. Oath-taking is a very important aspect of covenant-making throughout Scripture. The Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants were both sealed with oaths. It's very prominent. In fact, um, Many people define a biblical covenant as part and parcel of making an oath. It's swearing, it's promising, binding yourself with an oath. That is really the essence of a biblical covenant. And this is what we see between the Father and the Son in Psalm 110. But another thing here is that Hebrews 7.22 quotes verse 4 from Psalm 110 in relation to Christ and then concludes on the basis of verse 4, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Guarantor. Legal. Formal. Covenantal language. A guarantee. A seal, a promise. It's a guarantee. It's not just a word spoken, right? It's not just hearsay. It's not just small talk. A guarantee has legal connotations. That makes up the very definition of the word. Again, it's not um, a boy telling a girl, um, I love you, I'm committed to you. It's coming together in a formal agreement, a covenantal agreement of marriage, and vowing till death do we part. I will love you in sickness and in health, right? The oath of the Lord to the Lord is the basis for the oath, the promise, the covenant of the new covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. It's talking about the new covenant that is made and sealed in the blood of Christ. So, 
Christ's oath to the Father is the basis for that oath that he makes to us in the new covenant. Any questions? Okay. Presbyterians agree with this almost, right? Like 50%. We differ on how to relate it to the New Covenant. And I would say most. I would say most Reformed Presbyterians do. Not all. Um, Yeah. It's not in the Westminster Confession. It is in our Confession, but it's not there, so there is room for differences. But I'd say by and large, the vast majority do. Now, I want to move on to why it matters. Why do we care? But uh, I just want to real quickly skim through a few others. This is really the tip of the iceberg if we're looking for scriptural justification for this covenant. Uh, We could go to Philippians 2 and break that down. Jesus took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, And therefore, because of his obedience, God highly exalted him. Remember that contrast we saw earlier in the high priestly prayer? I've obeyed, now glorify me. And in in uh, Hebrews as well, on the basis of his obedience, now do this. You could break that down and see the covenant of redemption there. We could see uh, in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If we broke down that passage and examined carefully some of the relationship there, as we see the seed that is promised to to uh, to the suffering servant there in Isaiah 53, the will of the Lord to crush him, we again see these roles being played out. We could look at Romans chapter 5 and the Adam-Christ parallel, something that will come up in the weeks ahead. But we see this parallel, parallel like, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam and Christ are parallels. And we can learn about the work of Adam through the work of Christ, and the work of Christ through the work of Adam, and all of the um, covenant obligations that flow out of those two federal heads. And this reveals to us that just as, in, as Adam was in a covenantal relationship with the Father, thus his one disobedience led to the fall of all of mankind, because he legally represented all of mankind. Christ, in the same way, His obedience led to justification in life because He represented the people that the Father had given Him to. Those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. This verse, this passage, these two verses, 
really only makes sense in a covenantal context. If you throw out the covenant, it's hard to really justify what Paul is saying here and explaining why one man's why we would be punished for one man's sin. Although people usually don't ask, why would we be made righteous for one man's obedience? <laughs> they have no problem with it that way. It's the other way that they, they push back on. But this, this is covenantal language. It only makes sense in that context. So, there are many, in fact, and there are more than those that I didn't put up. There's, there are many other passages where we can look and see this special relationship between the Father and the Son. And the Spirit as well. Although the Spirit's role is harder to find, it is there. Questions before we now try to answer, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why do we care? It seems a bit abstract, a bit theoretical, a little unimportant. Well, a few things. It matters because it teaches us about the nature of God. Who He is. It teaches us about His love. His sovereignty. His plan. His wisdom. His love for Himself in the Godhead. His love for His elect. It teaches us about His nature. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Now, I had a question here written on a note card. Probably the right time to answer, uh, answer it, try to answer it. One of you asked, how is God's covenant within the Trinity manifested? Okay, we've kind of answered that, right? The Father gives a will. The Son agrees to obey it. Um, the Father gives a reward, the Spirit promises to bless. That's how it's manifested in history. Is our understanding of the Trinity's covenant sourced only from our covenant with God and earthly example? That's a great question. That's a very theological question. <laughs> um, it gets into a lot of issues. It's dangerous to reason from the creature to the Creator. All right, that's where heresy, that's the seed of heresy right there. When we reason from our understanding and make assumptions based upon that, creaturely things, and then assign those things to God. So I would not say that we learn from our, uh, we take the basis of an earthly covenant and then on that basis determine. But you can look at it the flip way as well. Um, God reveals to us His eternal covenant in part by making earthly covenants. And so, remember earlier I used the language, I'm boring you guys, I know, ectypal versus art, archetypal versus ectypal. An archetype, right? It's the perfect epitome. It's the perfect example from which smaller or inferior ectypes are patterned after. That's what I'm arguing here. That we see the pattern, we see the type, and we understand a little bit about the archetype, the ultimate example. 
So um, let me put it this way. This might be a little bit easier for you guys. Covenant swearing oaths, that's human language. That's our best understanding of the relationship within the Godhead. God is not a, a God that he should lie or repent. When Paul's, uh, God says uh, he regretted that he made Saul, for example, uh, there's no actual real hu- regret in God as if, um, the, in the same way that we might have regret. But that is language, it's baby talk, which gives us a little window into a little bit of what's going on with God. And in the same way with the covenant. Covenant is our language. It's how we understand things. It's the best way that we can grasp, in imperfect terms, what's going on within the Godhead. Why does God, who is ever truthful, faithful, and unchanging... I'm regretting this a little bit. Why is God, why is God who is ever truthful, faithful, and unchanging, need to make promises with Himself? Um, again, it's a manifestation of, a station of His great love for us. Uh, excuse me, or His great love even for Himself. It's not that He has to, but it's revealing Himself in terms that we can understand. The only thing that we can even begin to associate the immense love that the Father has for the Son is to understand it in a covenantal context. Because what is the greatest expression of love? It's not, honey, I love you. It's when you stand up on this stage, as two people did, <laughs> and say, before all the world, before God Himself, I'm vowing my love to you till death do I part. That's our greatest understanding of what love is. And so that teaches us about the immensity of God's love for himself and God's love for us. All right, I've got to move on quickly. It teaches us about the nature of God. It teaches us about our salvation. Assurance and comfort are found in God's sovereign electing grace that salvation is his plan, not ours, and that he will see it through. That Christ wasn't just sent, you know, uh, because God was scrambling to repair his perfect plan, but that Christ dying for the sins of his people was planned from all eternity. Thus, the fall of Adam was not an accident, it was not unforeseen, it was not unplanned by God. All of this is his wisdom working things out. Our salvation was planned out by the triune God before the foundation of the world. And this gives us unspeakable comfort. If you are a Christian, the Father and the Son and the Spirit covenanted together before all eternity to save you. To love you. To bring you to Himself. And your salvation then remains secure, not because of anything you do or don't do, but because Christ finished the work that the Father gave Him and accomplished God's justice. You don't have to worry about falling away because you've messed up today. You don't have to worry that God will change His mind because He decided to save you long before you were born, long before you did anything good or evil to begin with. 
And this gives great comfort and assurance for us to persevere in the faith. So it teaches us, it matters because it teaches us how he relates to us as well. I just ended up, I just ended talking about that. We're made in the image of God. If he relates to himself by way of covenant, we can learn how he relates to us in this way as well. So it teaches us about our salvation, it teaches us about God, it teaches us about our relationship to him. This is why it matters. This is why it's important to kind of uh, formulate these things and, and map this out and really sit back and adore and worship in amazement at God and His sovereign plan and wisdom and love for our, us and our salvation. So looking ahead, um, we're going to look at the outworking of the covenant of redemption in history. Covenant of grace. That's where we're going next week. We'll probably spend two weeks on that. But that is where we're going from this covenant of redemption. It reveals to us the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace is the outworking of that in human history. And so more of this will come together as we move forward. Any questions, comments, thoughts? You've got two minutes. Rebuttals? Rebukes? Yeah, that's so true. Thanks, thanks for that comment. It, um, I hear you saying it leads us to have a God-centered perspective instead of a self-centered perspective. So many times we live in the ups and downs of how we're doing. Did I pray this week? Did I read my Bible like I should have? Did I abstain from this or that sin? And that gives us joy when we do, but also it can lead to self-righteousness and pride. It leads to depression and down in the dumps when we fail because we think that we relate to God on that basis, but knowing that our salvation, He began in it in us. He will complete it. It's His plan. Um, knowing that resting in Christ's work for us gives us unspeakable joy, comfort, and assurance as we live a God-centered perspective. Well, let's close in prayer. Our God and Father, we do thank You for the revelation of Yourself, Lord, that we uh, can look at the work of Christ, we can look at our salvation, and we can see how all of these things find their root in eternity and in Your infinite wisdom. Lord, we pray that You would give us the minds and hearts to rightly adore You for these truths, to embrace them, Lord, that these truths would serve to motivate us towards greater godliness, greater sacrifice, greater love for you and for neighbor, richer worship. Lord, 
you would use these things ultimately to glorify yourself in our lives and in this church. Father, we also ask that you would now even come, come even now and begin preparing us uh, for the worship of you as we open up your word, as we sing your praises, as we lift our petitions before you, as we observe the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and that you would pour out your spirit to enable us to do just that. We do ask in Christ's name. Amen.